Um, and thank you so much, Liz. It's such a pleasure to be here and, and be connected. I, I mentioned this last week also, but just the fact that we are so many people from so many different parts of the world um, watching mindfulness grow and spread, I just, I just find so incredibly inspiring. Um, and my favorite thing before the pandemic was getting to travel <laughs> and meet people in England and in Denmark and in Turkey and in South America and other parts of the world where we were practicing mindfulness together. And here we are still practicing mindfulness together. And I actually think a lot about how, how much cultures have to learn from each other and how much these practices can really just begin to co-evolve with just other things that are happening that exist in, in almost every part of the world that are, if not exactly mindfulness, then certainly something like mindfulness. And that I always take so much inspiration from and so much hope from. Um, and then also the fact that we're now bring, bringing science to bear. As I know you've had so many, so many talks on the science of mindfulness as well. So I'll continue with talking about mindfulness with, with young people. Last week, we talked a bit about how I talk about the stress response and uh, we got into a few breathing practices for young, younger minds, younger folks. I wanna start thinking about how do we share this with older kids, those more skeptical teenagers who many of us work with, many of us live with, um, and how we can get them interested in some of these practices as well. So we'll, we'll start there basically with a few breath practices and then start leaning into some adaptations. And as always, I talked too much last week and I do wanna be sure I leave time for, for questions today as we go. So one, one practice, we, last week we did what, the alligator breath and hot chocolate breath and some of those fun ones for youngsters. As kids get older, of course, right? Teenagers are gonna roll their eyes if I suggest doing some, some butterfly breaths to them. Well, most of them, most of the ones I know anyway will. Um, so thinking about what are some other ways to get them interested, and so I'll actually just share this, this I learned actually from the, um, oh, if you could throw on my uh, screen sharing, that'd be helpful, whoever's running the tech. Um, but from the, the Mindfulness in Schools project, the, the .B folks, I learned the 7-Eleven breath, which some folks might be familiar with. And it's about as, as simple as it sounds. We're just counting and we'll count in as we inhale up to seven and back out to 11. So we can just do this together in two, three, four, five, six, seven, out two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. In two, three, four, five, six, seven, out two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. And you can then just let go of the count and just allow your, your breath to find its own more natural rhythm. Again, in that zone that we talked about last week, between four and six breaths in a minute, more like five or six for kids or teenagers. 
You'll notice a, a famous American basketball player in the picture that I, the image I shared a moment ago. And that's another really useful, we, in America we say buy-in or ways to get kids interested and engaged in mindfulness is how many professional athletes, for example, really are practicing mindfulness and have an interest in that. I was, I can't remember if I mentioned it in the talk last week, I did a bunch of talks last week. Um, I was listening to the radio and they were interviewing the American gymnast, Simone Biles. And she was talking about working on her mindfulness. She was like, I need to step back a little bit and just work on my mindfulness. Um, so a lot of professional athletes and often what athletes call this is, is mental fitness training. Right? We know that athletes have physical fitness training that they have to do, but this mental fitness training, right? This is actually the space between our ears is one of the most important muscles that we can learn how to train to stay in the moment, to not get over-emotional in a game, to be present. So this can be another useful buy-in. I also think a lot of these practices as teens get older, right, they do roll their eyes at us <laughs> as adults, as teachers, as parents, therapists, whatever our job is. But they, they're, they're interested in what we have to say, but they're actually developmentally and evolutionarily, they're at a place where they're actually paying more attention to their peers. And that's very frustrating when we live with them or when we work with them that they no longer think we're so great anymore. But it's actually a real opportunity as well. One of the ways I talk about mindfulness is like, look, this 7-Eleven breath or some of these other practices, these can, these can help you be a better friend when your friend is having a difficult time. If they're having a panic attack, if they're feeling overwhelmed because of a breakup or because of a mark in school that they didn't feel good about, here's, here's some psychological first aid that you can offer a friend. But I've got to teach it to you first to make sure you've got it, right? Then you can teach it to your friend. But that becomes a bit of a, right? When we, like teenagers especially, just love to feel empowered. They're being let in on a little secret from the adult world. Oh, I can, I can help my friends when they're struggling with, with anxiety or struggling with stress. That feels really good. Or get those older kids teaching the younger kids, perhaps in the school or something like that. So that's a place where something like the 7-Eleven breath or, or some of these other practices, we can also start to get, get some buy-in with adolescents. Um, it's also another practice that I like with teenagers or kids on the, on the cusp of adolescence. I, 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 is this one I learned from my friend, Irene McHenry, I don't know whether she invented it, but um, it's the silent sigh. And if you, you know, we, we all know that a sigh is a good way of letting out extra frustration or, or emotions. We do it consciously, we do it unconsciously, just. <sighs> and it's actually a breath regulation practice. Right? It's letting out a protracted exhale that actually resets our breath and re-regulates our breath. And of course, if you live with teenagers, you probably had the experience where they sigh at you because you're such an annoying grown-up, right? Just, oh, dad, you're so lame. You're so annoying, right? Whatever it might be. Well, I sometimes teach kids around that age, here's the silent sigh or the stealth sigh. If you're feeling really annoyed at your parents or frustrated or overwhelmed, you can let out a sigh with frustration, but just do it silently and you won't get in trouble. <laughs> so let's try this together. Let's try a silent sigh together. I'll just invite you to breathe in. 
And then just letting out a nice long silent sigh, slow and steady, just pressing all of the air out, slowly, steadily. My gosh, dad, you're so annoying. All the way out to the bottom of your breath. And then take another inhale and let your breath, again, just reset a little bit more regulated than perhaps it was just a few moments ago. So again, breath work is not exactly mindfulness, right? We can bring more awareness to our breath, but just learning how to regulate our breath actually gets our nervous system into a state where we're able to be a little bit more mindful and bring more mindful awareness to things. And also to really, again, tune in to focus. I work with a lot of anxious kids around in, in, in the US, right? And talking about, right, this, this can help you before that challenging test or before that soccer or football game where you have to run out onto the pitch, right? Or before that difficult conversation that you have to have that these little practices can be helpful. Um, and they really do, as I was saying last week, as we regulate our breath, we're regulating our bodies, our nervous systems, our brains, and in turn regulating our emotions and our impulses and our concentration as well. So helpful in all of these different ways. Another one that I like with teenagers, that's again, something that a lot of us don't realize that we're doing, that's another breath reset, I learned this from Fleet Mall, who's a wonderful speaker presenter. And he was pointing out, if you just go like this, if you just put your hands behind your head like this, it's really hard to not breathe slowly and to not breathe deeply if your hands are just behind your head like this. This actually stretches out the vagus nerve. It gives our torso a good stretch, our lungs. Our breath slows down and it deepens and we're hitting those nerve endings in the bottom of our lungs that are that reset button that tell our nervous system to quiet down. So particularly for those self-conscious teens who don't want everyone to notice them doing some mindfulness practice or they're looking around, what's everybody else doing, right? Just taking a moment to go like this. Everyone does this all the time, half of us without realizing it just leaning back, this itself helps regulate our breath and our bodies and our nervous system. So just a simple, simple one as well. As we also think about adapting mindfulness, last week we did, I believe it was a brief visualization. We did the mindful seat exercise that I shared, the noticing senses and sensations, emotions, actions, and thoughts. And then we did some breath work. But there's also so many other ways that we can think about engaging kids and adapting mindfulness. And I want to just share what some of those could be. For one thing, I always find it useful to get in touch with our five senses. I mentioned this last week, right? If I clap my hands like that, we're present for the sound of that hand clap. Then our mind wanders off to the past or wanders off to the future once more. And a, a nice little practice I learned is actually a, a mindful clap, which could also be with younger kids, maybe a mindful high five or something like that. But I'll invite you to just hold your hands up like this. 
And then notice how your hands feel right now. Notice temperature, what they feel like, the air moving around your hands. The surface as well as deeper inside of your hands. On the count of three, I'll invite you to clap your hands three times. And then again, noticing, tuning into those sensations in your hands. So one, two, three. And then just hold your hands up again like this. And seeing if you can feel in your left hand, where did your right hand meet your left hand? The palm print that it left, lingering, tingling, stinging sensations. Or where your left hand made contact with your right hand. The outline of where the two met. Difference in warmth or sensation. Continuing to notice sensations in your hands, even deeper down, lingering vibrations or just other sensations down deeper in your muscles, even all the way down to your bones. Perhaps feeling your pulse, your heartbeat. And back up to the surface of your hands, maybe noticing. Any other sensations or if you weren't looking at your hands, how would you know that they were there? What sensations tell you the size or shape of your hands? Just continuing to tune into the sensations there. And soon maybe noticing as the sensations fade a little bit, that is often when our attention begins to wander and you can just set your hands back down once more and take a look around the room and then back once more to the screen in front of you. So our senses are very powerful in this way. Another one that I like is simply noticing sounds. You heard me mention last week this favorite childhood memory of noticing all the sounds in the woods. And of course, this is wonderful practice to do if you're in nature, but we're not all in nature. I'm stuck in this air conditioned office. But I'll invite you to, to follow with me some of these, these prompts. You can again, just find a comfortable posture, lower your eyes or close them, whatever you're comfortable with. And I'll ring my bell. And just seeing if you can listen to hear the beginning, middle and end of the sound of the bell.
and then continuing to listen wherever you are. Perhaps noticing at first sounds far away as if you had superhero listening abilities. What's the farthest away sound that you can hear? Outside of the building. And then closer still sounds inside the building, inside the room even. Pleasant or unpleasant. Sounds closer by still, maybe the creaking of your chair, rustling of your clothes, the sound of your breath. Maybe noticing sounds inside your body, your stomach growling, blood rushing past your ears or the sound of your heartbeat. Perhaps even sound of your thoughts, if that's possible, just noticing. And outward once more, maybe noticing sounds from the left, sounds from the right. Sounds from in front of you, sounds from behind you. My friend says 360 degrees of sounds, noticing sounds above, noticing sounds below. Noticing all the sounds as well as sounds inside of sounds and spaces between sounds. Is there any silence? And I'll ring the bell once more. And just raising your eyes again, and perhaps noticing if there's been a shift from before and after these couple of practices. With kids, of course, these can be, you know, we, we have the added advantage. This, we, we did we did a lot, we did that mindful clap thing, and then I just kind of rushed into the next one, right? But listening to sounds and, and saying things like, you know, put on your superhero listening abilities, right? That actually, gets kids to listen in a different way. I'll talk about the research behind that in a moment, but also giving, giving kids, kids need a few more prompts, right? Just saying, let's just listen to sounds for 10 minutes. That's actually hard for kids, but helping them with those prompts, notice far away, closer from the left, from the right, that just, their mind wanders off and we drop in, okay, now from the left, mind wanders off, now from the right, it gives them a little bit more guidance, a little bit more structure. It can be 10 minutes, can be two minutes. And for kids who are, are struggling with attention, right? They're, they're already focused on 
Well, where I'm sitting, right? The motorcycle going by, right? What is that, right? Well, I wonder what, what, what color motorcycle is that? Where's that motorcycle going? Who's riding the motorcycle? Who are they going to visit, right? All those kind of questions for a kid, maybe with some attention issues, some attention deficit disorder or something like that, right? Well, we can meet them where they are. Let's meet them at the motorcycle outside and let's teach them actually how to pay attention, how to regulate their attention, how to bring it back in, in a kind of fun and playful way. And that can be a lot of fun for them. Our kids struggling to, to stay focused on the soccer field or something like that, excuse me, football field, right? Like noticing, right? Sounds from the left, sounds from the right, right? Okay, back in the moment. Another variation on that, I was doing a workshop in, in Germany and someone came and was suggesting, can try this along with me, try covering your ears for younger kids. Move your right hand away, noticing sounds from the right. Left hand, sounds from the left. Now like a, like a deer, try cupping your ears forward, like an animal. And then I never noticed this, and it'll depend on how noisy it is where you are, but try cupping your ears backwards. Actually, hear really different sounds when you cup your ears backwards. I was like, whoa, that's really cool. <laughs> so I really like doing this one. Just like deer ears or something like that. So very powerful. These are fun and a little bit more playful. And again, you see how the age range can be from teenagers. Okay, we'll just listen to younger kids, right? Let's listen directionally in these different ways. We can also really use the imagination, use visualizations. I'm teaching a longer course right now, and we had visualization day, and so many visualizations are great, right? I'm sure you've done them in these lectures and in MBSR, right? Sit like the mountain, right? Or lay down like the lake or put your thoughts on the cloud, let them drift away. These are also really powerful kids, and we can actually help kids write these for themselves. This one kid I worked with, again, as a therapist is my day job, we would do these longer visualizations every session. We'd start with a little breathing practice. Then at the end, we'd do like 10 minutes of visualization. And one of the, there's many bad things about the fact that we all have phones on us all the time. One of the good things is that we all have a portable recording device. And at the end of the sessions, I would just, you know, okay, we're gonna do, uh, this will be Max's 10 minute mountain meditation and just, you know, click record and ding with my bell and guide him through the practice and then email it to him and his family. So he then had that practice we had created together to take home. And then he actually, in our last session, he made his own visualization and guided me in that visualization. Then he really felt, he was a kid that loved writing and creative writing. So he really felt so empowered. Again, that's often the key with adolescence. He felt empowered that he was teaching me something and he had made up his own practice and then he was more likely to do it. So the imagination and visualizations are beautiful. Bring mindfulness into things like play and games. And one of my favorite studies that really explains a lot of how visualizations work and how play works comes from a, a researcher named Lev Vygotsky, who was a child development researcher. And he invented concepts like the zone of proximal development or scaffolding. Some people might, if you're a child development person, you might have heard of, heard of his work. He did this other study that a lot of people are not familiar with, but jumped out at me. He got this group of eight-year-olds together in a room and he said, okay, I want you to stand still for as long as you can. Go. 
All right, anyone here have eight-year-olds or work with eight-year-olds? Okay, don't spoil it for everybody. But but what happened was the kids ran around all over the place, right? No one's surprised, right? Five minutes later, the kids are running wild. So he calls them back in. He says, okay, everyone get together again. I want you to stand still for as long as you can. But this time, I want you to imagine that you're a knight guarding a castle. What do you think happens? Well, the kids now stand still for 15 or 20 minutes. And what's happening just by tapping into their imaginations, just by giving them a little job, a little role playing, right? What is he doing? The object of attention, the anchor of attention is not your breath or something boring like that, or it's not listening to sounds, right? It's that you, the anchor of attention is play, is this role that you're playing. And they are still activating their prefrontal cortex and they're still quieting down their limbic system as they play in that role of standing still like the knight guarding the castle. And of course, the same is true for any of us who have done visualizations or any of us who have done yoga postures, right? It's easier to imagine that I'm pressing up like a upward facing dog than for the teacher to say, put down one hand and then the other hand and then lean back. It's like, oh no, that image just works. So we can be playful in this way. We can bring mindfulness into games, perhaps, that we're playing with kids. And so many games, actually, that we already play teach sometimes mindfulness, but also teach a lot of other things. Like, you know, I think about games like Simon Says or Mother May I, and these are probably mostly in the English language, these games, right? But these actually teach things like impulse control and careful listening and executive functions like that. Games like Mother May, excuse me, games like 20 Questions or games like I Spy, these are actually teaching what we call theory of mind, which is actually helping someone take someone else's perspective. That's a really important emotional intelligence skill for kids to play. And we can also find other ways of just bringing mindfulness into other games that we play. And another, another game that I've actually found doesn't translate across cultures, but, um, I know you have it in, in the UK. Candyland is a game that's basically designed to torture adults with boredom. It's like an absolutely horrible game for like five-year-olds. A friend and I ended up adapting Candyland to be like emotional intelligence Candyland. Land on blue, talk about when you were sad, et cetera, et cetera. And then also land on purple and just name one sound that you can hear. And land on orange and take one Mindful breath, maybe a hot chocolate breath. Land on green, name something that you're grateful for. So that we're integrating into the game, right? Just a few practices. Right? This is a bit of what I do as, as a therapist. I actually, as a side note, my son asked for Candyland and I told him that he, he couldn't have it <laughs> because I find it so boring. And so, you know, you always want to be careful what you wish for because I came home the next week and he had made his own Candyland and then wanted to play it with me. And I was like, okay, fine, I'll play it with you. And then I came home the next day and he had made the board even bigger with Candyland. So you always want to be careful about, you know, what it, what it is you tell your kids not to do. Um, another game that I like a lot is uh, Jenga. That game where you pull out the, the different blocks and um, I don't have it in the drawer right in front of me. This is a great game because it's a lot of mindfulness of, of body, 
right? Is your hand more steady on the in-breath or the out-breath? And then what I have, uh, what I've done is I've written on a lot of the blocks, you pull out a block and it says something on it, like do three hot chocolate breaths or name three sensations in your feet. So I'll be playing Jenga with kids and they'll like pull out a block and they'll be like, what's a hot chocolate breath? I'm like, oh, well, this is mindful Jenga. So this is a, this is a hot chocolate breath or this is a ninja breath or something like that. And then we're just kind of playing mindful Jenga. <laughs> and it's just a way of integrating mindfulness in to whatever it is that we, we might already be doing. Again, more, more with, with younger kids, of course, but a few ideas on that front. Bringing mindfulness into music and certainly playing music is an opportunity to practice being in the moment, right? If to like just, you know, kind of tune into what everybody else is doing as you're harmonizing with song or with playing an instrument. You have to not think about the mistake you just made, but just be present and ready for the, the next note as it arrives. And then music also can really tell us a lot about our mood in a few different ways. And so a few practices I, I suggest to teach kids a little bit about their mood. A lot of us who've been practicing mindfulness and a lot of us have something like the body scan, right? One of the things the body scan does is it helps us to be aware of how our emotions actually arise first in the body, right? Oh, I'm noticing anxieties in, in my chest or sadness is in my throat or whatever it might be. Well, we can help kids actually learn how to recognize their emotions through music. And music we know is very evocative. We've all probably, you know, like been, been somewhere and some song comes on the radio and suddenly we're transported back to being 15 years old and feeling those same emotions again. And actually where we process music in the brain is actually next to the, the region where we have our emotional memory. That's part of why. But one thing I do with kids to help them learn how to recognize their emotions is, is I'll say to them, I want you to, to go home and put in your, your earbuds and just, you know, put on your earbuds and, and, and pick out like one angry song, one sad song, one scary song, one silly song, your favorite ones, listen to that song and notice how you feel in your body. And the kids will come back and they'll say, oh, I listened to the angry song and my heart started to pound. And my, my temperature went up and I started to make fists without even realizing it. Okay, so that's what anger feels like in your body. Next time you feel your hands making fists, your temperature going up, your heart starting to pound, you recognize that as anger and you name it as anger. And maybe you make a different choice than punching your sister in the face or you know, whatever impulse you maybe had. Or the sad song or for kids with anxiety. And again, it's because I work as a therapist, right? Like a good scary movie soundtrack is really good for a, a scary song. Like the Jaws soundtrack is really good or you know, the, the Imperial March from Star Wars or something like that. It's like a good way to just trigger a little bit of anxiety. Notice what it feels like. And then let's take a few breaths. So let's feel our feet on the ground or let's do one of these practices that helps us not shut off that emotion but feel and see that emotion, but also be able to think, think about what kind of action we wanna take where our, our prefrontal cortex is also engaged at the same time. So music is really beautiful. Another one I do with, with teenagers, oftentimes they'll say, we'll, we'll make a list of coping skills. Oh, if you're feeling sad, you know, what can you do? 
and um oh well, listening to music or calling my friends okay so let's make the list and then you know they'll say well i you know was listening to music and it didn't help me feel any better I like, well why don't we try mindfully listening to music and they say well what does that mean i'll say well i want you to pick out one of your favorite songs that feels good but i want you to listen to that song put in your earbuds or whatever don't you know turn out any distractions turn up the volume as loud as you want and just listen to one instrument can you just listen to the bass line? Can you just listen to the piano sample? If your mind wanders off to the vocals, just bring it back to that piano sample. Like, okay. And I come back the next week and I'm like, oh, Dr. Willard, like my, my Spotify says I've listened to this song like 760 times and I listened to just the piano and I never noticed this certain thing about that song. And I was really focused the whole time. And so that to me then becomes like, well, A, curiosity. And one of the things mindfulness does is it makes us curious. And there's actually, uh, Judd Brewer's research recently has been a lot about how curiosity is the antidote to strong, difficult emotions like anxiety. So I'm, I'm really excited about that. But, but mindfulness makes us so curious, right? And kind of awestruck, like eating that raisin for the first time whoa, my mind is blown, right? Whoa, I never noticed this about my favorite song. Well, what else have you never really tuned into and paid attention to? Or if you paid that much attention to it, what would happen? So that becomes a conversation. As well as just saying to a kid, you know, listen to your favorite song mindfully. And that's four or five minutes of, if not mindful awareness, at least focused awareness or, or concentration practice really. And that's a lot more interesting than saying, focus on your breath for five minutes, because it's them picking their favorite song, not my favorite indie rock from the 90s or something like that's going to get an eye roll from them. But again, that's, that's something that can feel empowering for them that they have a part of that they can then do as their practice. And then maybe from there, they learn how to have more of what we would think of as a more kind of grown up practice of just more pure awareness or something like that. Bring mindfulness into movement bringing it, as I mentioned, into sports, mental fitness training, so many athletes using, using mindfulness in different ways. So tons of research on mindfulness, and um, I don't want to spend too much time, um, you know, on all of that, because you can just, you can find that on your own. But I think I just want to finish by talking about how to get kids interested in mindfulness. And I think we want to build on existing knowledge and experience. When have you felt in the moment? How can you feel like that more? We can think about what already interests them, potential role models. Right? I mentioned how, how many athletes in the Olympics are doing this. There's so many other just like pop stars in general who are practicing mindfulness these days. We've got also, you can see in the top right-hand corner of the screen, Breathe With Me Barbie, the mindful Barbie doll. Um, we've got Yoda down here from Star Wars. Um, I, during the pandemic, I have a seven-year-old son. Um, we got very, very into Legos and um, Lego masters. And, um, and there's, they now have like mindfulness Lego sets for <laughs> grownups and for kids. And I, my son's birthday is coming up and I'm like, I kind of want this Lego set for me because it's really 
nice, you know, I don't know if it's mindfulness or, or concentration practice, but it's a really soothing practice that gets me into flow. So those are a few thoughts on getting kids interested. Um, as well as just, you know, thinking about, again, for teenagers, how can they help other kids? How can we get the older kids in the school teaching the younger kids, the captain of the football team teaching the younger kids on the football team, the peer leaders? How can we get the, the I don't know what you would, the, I'd say the fifth graders and the kindergartners, what would, what would you say, the 10-year-olds the and the five-year-olds, basically, the 10-year-olds the teaching the five-year-olds in what we would call elementary school in the U.S., all of these different ways of, of building mindfulness into perhaps the culture or the environment where the child is, where they're learning from each other, not just from us boring adults. So, oh my gosh, look at all these slides I've got, and I do wanna leave time for questions. Um, so to me, also, as we, we think about why mindfulness, I think it can be so empowering for kids. It doesn't have to take a lot of time. It can be very portable. Of course, just like anything, the more they practice, the more they'll get. But also with young kids, we might wanna really think about the fact that they are, um, right? We're, we're really teaching them the elements of mindfulness. And I also sometimes encourage kids and, and all of us just to you know, occasionally just ask ourselves for a bit more informal awareness, just what am I doing right now and how do I know I'm doing it? How do you know you're walking right now? I can feel my feet. I can hear my footsteps. How do you know you're breathing? How do you know you're eating? I can taste my food. I can smell my food. I can see my food. Right? These can be helpful. And, and again, as I opened with last week, right, that, that we want kids to be living perfectly mindful in every moment, but of course that's a really tall order. So Right, we can step back from that and then just thinking about helping them integrate it into moments in their lives. Step back from that, think about teaching them practices, practicing together in our classrooms, in our homes, in our offices, right? If that's not working, we can really focus on the, the community around the kids. And if not that, right, ourselves. We can just come back to ourselves because the quality of our own presence, right, as I mentioned, with the mindfulness contagion effect is really important and really powerful here. So I'll, I'll close. I saw this, this meme online a couple of years ago. It says, there's this guy at the coffee shop sitting at a table, not on his phone, not on a laptop, just drinking his coffee like a psychopath. And it's, it's so rare that we see this, right? And it just reminds me of, of, of how we can just bring a bit more mindfulness to, to our lives as adults by just taking that, you know, stepping back and just closing the computer, putting away our phones, especially when it comes to presence with our, our kids, right? Just drinking our coffee, drinking our tea, whatever it might be, feeling it, seeing it, tasting it, and just noticing how our interactions then change for the rest of the day with our kids or with, with the young people in our lives because we show up for them with such a different kind of presence. Even when we just take a few moments to, to just drink our coffee a little bit more mindfully. So these are a few thoughts. I've got 1 million more thoughts, um, but I really do wanna 
a lot of time for questions. Um, I do want to, I'll just throw in the chat my contact information. Um, if you want to follow up or you want to learn more, you're welcome to. I'm actually teaching a, a, a opening a, a class in the fall, starting in September. If folks are interested, I'd be happy to chat with you more about that. But I do just want to hear if there's any questions about what I've shared so far. Um, and this has been, again, such a pleasure to be with the Oxford Mindfulness Center. And of course, such an absolutely incredible honor to be here speaking uh, to all of you with the Oxford, Oxford Mindfulness Center. So thoughts, questions? Um, I see Kurt has, has his hand up. Okay. Uh, yes, great. Uh, yeah, thanks, uh, Christopher. Um, uh, one of the things that I was wondering about when you were explaining all the uh, different techniques that you were using to have uh, children focus on their breath or listening to sounds, one of the things that happens when I was doing it, I mean, it naturally happens is you become distracted, right, by your thoughts. And so it seems, you know, at least at, at, as an, at an adult level, one of the important aspects of mindful practice is learning to recontextualize your thoughts, to sort of see them as mental events that can be useful or not useful, that can be distracting, that you can let go of. So do you do any of that with the young kids, like emphasize the thought part or how to think about their thoughts? Or is it more just present focused awareness and not so much working with sort of developing a different relationship to their thoughts? That's, a, that's an excellent question, Kurt. And, and to me, that's that's really when a lot of the magic starts to begin to work with mindfulness is when we realize, oh, I'm not my thoughts and I don't have to believe every thought that comes through my mind. I think teenagers can start to just grasp that concept through explanation and then also through experiential practice. And then in an inquiry, we can help draw that out even more and help it feel even more empowering, basically. With younger kids, that's trickier because even just sort of like, what is a thought, right? That's a fairly abstract question. I do think that sometimes different visualizations can be useful here. I kind of skipped over visualizations, but I, I did briefly mention, right, that we can do visualizations like, you know, and so many of the visualizations in mindfulness are pointing toward this same metaphor. Underlying it is you are not your thoughts and your thoughts are, are, can be distant from you. And they're not, they're not to be what we call fused together. And that is things like let's, let's close our eyes or let's lower our eyes and let's imagine, you know, you're looking up at the sky and let's place your thought on the cloud and watch the cloud float away. Or let's place it in the river and watch the river, right, carried away. Or let's imagine we're at the aquarium and the, the fish are carrying your thoughts around or marchers in a parade or something like that. And those metaphors can be really helpful for kids and they extend out into longer visualization practices. You can also do this in a more concrete way with kids by having them, you know, very literally draw this. Um, and I was just in a class I'm teaching. Um, one of the exercises I do is I, I've got these little boxes and then little pieces of paper basically, and maybe bring to mind a, a particular scene um, you know, somewhere you feel safe and comfortable, blah, 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 right? Notice a thought coming up or distraction coming up, write it down or draw it, 
set it into the box and set it aside. And that's a very concrete way for kids who developmentally can't abstract to, you know, just like, oh, don't believe your thoughts, right? That that's a more concrete way of capturing that. And then in the inquiry process, right, we can start to create a little bit more, more depth with the kids around that as well for whatever makes sense for them. But that's, that's what I'm kind of pointing toward or, or hoping to get to with younger kids. So thank you, Kurt. Um, I see some questions popping up in the chat. Um, and I apologize for folks who were not here last week. Um, the hot chocolate breath is basically just, if you imagine you're holding a, a cup or a bowl of hot chocolate, breathe in, smelling, blow out, cooling off. So it's using the imagery and the, the physicality, kind of like tapping into that Vygotsky piece, right? Of here's how to regulate your breath. We all know what it's like to breathe in smelling something. We all know what it's like to blow out cooling it off. It teaches kids how to regulate their breath with that visual aid, basically. A ninja breath is um, just trying to breathe as silently as possible. And if you've ever tried to breathe totally silently, it takes a lot of focus. You are probably not focused on the future or the past, but very slowly, carefully watching every frame by frame almost of the inhale and of the exhale, trying to keep it silent. So it's again, a playful way of, of teaching some, some breathing to kids. And the ninja breath is actually more breath awareness than just um, breath, breath regulation, which kind of feeds into the next question about concentration practice versus mindfulness practice and concentration versus um, mindfulness in general. To, uh, and uh, there's a lot of different ways to look at this. There's a spiritual way to look at this. There's a clinical way to look at these distinctions. There's a cognitive way to look at these distinctions um, that I'm going to kind of compress. And, and the cognitive people and the spiritual people will all be equally unhappy, I think. Um, so concentrate. So to me, concentration is like one pointed awareness. I'm focused on my breath. My mind wanders off. I bring it back to my breath. To me, I think of this as like strength training at the gym. Mindfulness practice, as I understand it, or mindful awareness, is being aware kind of of everything. I may be anchored on my breath and focused on my breath. My mind wanders off. I notice where my mind goes. Oh, it's going to the grocery list. Oh, it's going to, am I invited to the birthday party? Oh, it's going to, when's the pandemic going to end? And that's an insight. The more we start to notice, oh, my mind is always going to dinner always going to the pandemic or whatever. That's an insight. That's a moment of insight. That's the moment of mindfulness. Moment of mindfulness is not when our minds are clear. The moment of mindfulness is actually when we're like, oh, I'm having the thought. And this is what the thought is, is the insight. And then we come back maybe to the breath or to an anchor. That's a really short version. I'm sure there are academics and Tibetans who would spend like 15 hours debating the finer points of this. Um, but that's that's my understanding or, or the way I think of it. Lisa, I love this question. Does mindfulness in school run the risk of putting kids off board if they think about it like other subjects? As someone who works with kids, I think this is such an important question. My goal when I think about teaching mindfulness to kids, when a school invites me in or parents ask me to share this with kids as a therapist is that this is number one, fun, number two, useful. Ideally, it's both. If it's neither, I'm not going to keep pushing it. 
because what I want is not for kids to develop a great practice when they're young, but to have a positive experience of what we might call mindfulness. And I don't even necessarily call everything I do with kids mindfulness because it's already taken on that, that perception in some schools of like, oh, this is this annoying thing we have to do. But, but to me, it's so that at some point later in their life, maybe when they're 18 and they're struggling with mental health or when they're 45 and they're going through a divorce or, or grief, that they then can look back and think, when I was a kid, we did that thing where we did some breathing and that really helped me feel calmer. I wonder if that'll be helpful for my anxiety now. Or we did that visualization and I felt really peaceful and I wonder if I could do something like that again now that I am grieving or going through this difficult time in my 40s or my 50s. And so to me, I just really want kids to have a positive experience because of that very risk that you mentioned. And so that I always wanted to feel successful, that there's not so much a right or a wrong, even though there kind of is, um, that kids feel like there's a positive experience so it can be something that they can reaccess and get back in touch with later in life. And if they enjoy it, then great. But I think, and, and that's where it's easier for me to be a therapist one-on-one. -on -one. Kid doesn't like it. Okay, we'll do something else. Then it is in a school where it's like, everyone, let's all do this now. Because it's hard to have everyone enjoy it then um, necessarily or feel like it's, it's useful. So I think that's a really valuable question, Lisa. I've got more. I see I've got more, more questions, but I should probably finish up. Oh, it's just Martin saying... We should do these with adults. Absolutely. Everyone should do some hot chocolate press of any age. Thank you, Chris. I was just about to say, we, look, we're, we're so close to the uh, to the hour now, but a huge thank you to you for, for sharing all of those things. And I really echo what Martin says actually in the chat about all of these things. And when you were talking about some of the techniques can really help us to remind ourselves about, about what some of these skills are for and making it a bit more playful and a bit more fun. And going back to the basics can be just so helpful for us. So. Thank you so much. And I'm so glad you put your um, your email and your website underneath. So anybody that wants to look at anything that Chris is doing in terms of his books and other things, I'm sure, is it all on there, Chris? All, all the links? Should all, should all be on there. Yeah, absolutely. And if you want the slides also just on my website, there's a form. Yeah. Great. Thanks, Chris.